Good morning. So if you didn't notice, there's a bat flying around. And it actually returned while my mother was praying. So it may come back. So I'm just warning you that may happen. And we're just going to pretend like it didn't happen. Um, but actually, I was just thinking back to my days at Sterling. Back, I graduated in 2011. And there was a legend, uh, a guy named Levi Cheney, who I went to school with. And uh, Levi was the master of pranks, and if you think a bat is kind of distracting, imagine sitting in Wednesday morning chapel, and all of a sudden seeing mice fall from the ceiling with parachutes. <laughs> yeah, people went ballistic, right? Mice scurrying on the ground with parachutes, it was awesome. Anyway, uh, so if there's a bat, I think we can, we can just move past it, it'll be all good. Anyway, it's great to be here. Again, I, I went to Sterling. I've sat in those seats. When I was here, the seats were red and the walls were green. It looked like a watermelon. So things have changed since I've been here. Uh, but I want, I, real quick, I want to introduce you to my family. I've got a picture of them. My wife, Betsy, my two kids, Henry and Pierce. Uh, they're my pride and joy. And uh, I met my wife two years after graduating from Sterling. And I've been in Wichita working at a church ever since. And I really enjoy what I do. But it is good to be here. Uh, I think back to my time at Sterling. My freshman year, I was in the basement of Kilbourne. I lived in room B7. Got a couple basement dwellers. B7, a little slice of heaven. We had a great, great rooming situation. I've got a picture of my roommates. Uh, these are my buddies, Sam, Paul, myself, and my buddy, Zach. Uh, we played basketball together. This is a picture of us in a parking garage right before we were about to run our first marathon. Marathon, if you don't know, it's 26 miles. It's a long, long race. And in order to run a marathon, it requires a lot of conditioning or a lot of training. And those of you who are in sports and basketball and football, you know what it's like, or any sport for that matter. There's a process you go through where you condition your body so that when you perform, you perform at your body's best. And that takes something we call discipline. It takes putting your body in a position for it to be uncomfortable so that it can become stronger and faster and be able to perform your task better than you ever could before. And so I remember training for that marathon in Sterling, and Sterling's not a fun place to run. If you're a cross-country runner, you know the struggle, right? You're, you're not a whole lot to see. You can run to the lake. Uh, I used to run in the cemetery, kind of creepy, but that's what I would do. We would go uh, out into the fields. What, what we would do in the long runs, okay, so we're training, we're running 18 to 20 miles, is we'd go out to the fields, and they're, they're marked by the stop signs mile by mile by mile by mile. So you'd run a square. And we would run these squares over and over and over again. And I remember one particular day, it was 95 degrees, it was hot. I was feeling exhausted. Uh, it, was, it was springtime, so it was very, very warm. And I remember feeling absolutely exhausted to the point of wanting to pass out. And we get around a corner where I, I thought we went out ahead of time and put out water or Gatorade or something to, to get something to drink. And we got there and there was no water to be found. And it was like the most sinking and devastating feeling in that moment. And I remember feeling so incredibly weak, but somehow managing to finish the race. Here's the deal. When we train, when we condition, when we discipline our bodies, we are doing so so that we can actually compete in the race. And I believe all of us in the Christian faith, we, we, there's a struggle, there's a tension between wanting to be better, wanting to be more like Christ, and understanding that the gospel gives us freedom. 
But sometimes being a Christian and being a follower of Jesus means that we intentionally discipline, have discipline in our life in order to live a more fruitful life. I want to give you a working definition of discipline because sometimes I think we think discipline is uh, something that happens when you do something wrong. But I want to give you this definition so we're on the same page. Discipline is choosing between what you want now and what you want most. And I'd venture to say that for many of you here, uh, you're on various different spiritual journeys. There are some of you who are close to God, who walk with Jesus. There are some of you who are far from God. There are some of you who at some point in your life, you came to a saving faith in Jesus, but you're not walking close to him right now. There's messiness, there's brokenness, there's addiction. And wherever you are in your spiritual journey, whether you're apathetic towards God or anything that's spoken here in chapel, or whether this is, this is your life, I believe that this message can absolutely change the trajectory of our life. That being said, we're going to be in Philippians 3 to start, and we're going to be looking in three different places where the Apostle Paul is speaking to this idea. I have the scripture on the screen. You can follow along with me. But whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So I'm, I'm jumping in in the middle of a passage here, so I, I want to do a little bit of work. But essentially what Paul is doing here is he's saying, I've done all these righteous things. I have played all these. I, I've lived a good life. I've done good things. But all those good things that I've done, I consider them rubbish. Right, another word for garbage, for trash. I, I consider all those good things as trash. He's basically saying if you get religion, if you get morality, if you get do good things, don't do bad things, right, and you try to live in that way, all of those things mean nothing if you don't have an internal transformation with the one true God. Those things, the religious games we play where we say, okay, I'm not as bad as this person, or I'm better than this person, my life is, is and we compare ourselves to one another, those are, are unhelpful because ultimately that's not the way God sees us. God does not judge you in that same way. So maybe your struggle is similar to mine, maybe it's not, but one of my struggles is this. My struggle is that I feel like my good behavior me living righteously, can somehow keep God's favor. That if I do enough good things and not enough bad things, then somehow God's going to look at me and love me. And what happens is we fall into this trap of something called legalism, which is kind of like an illustration I would use. It's kind of like mowing the lawn when your lawn is full of weeds. I currently manage a couple rental properties in Wichita, and I don't take very good care of those lawns, but I, I do try to mow them once a week, and recently we've had a ton of rain, and because of that rain, the weeds have shot up in my lawn and the grass is really, really struggling. So I go over there, I mow the lawn because it looks terrible. And literally two days later, I drive by and the weeds have already shot up again. And so I mow it again and it's really this process of, really a futile process because ultimately, I'm treating the symptom, I'm not treating the root. I'm wanting to create a good image, I'm wanting to, to, to mow it over, but ultimately, I'm not dealing with what's underneath. And for many of us, managing our behavior, changing the way we try to live and act and behave, but not dealing with the root leads us into the trap of legalism. And legalism is not good news, it's bad news. Because all of us are in sin. All of us are desperate 
for a savior. We cannot rescue ourselves. Legalism says God will love us if we change. The gospel says God will change us because in Christ he has already infinitely loved us. Legalism says I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And the gospel says I'm accepted and loved, fully known and fully accepted, and therefore I obey. Moralism teaches us that we must do good things in order to appease an angry God. Again, this just doesn't sound like good news, but the gospel is that God relates to sinners like you and like me. And our relationship with God, our justification before God, and it is rooted in Christ's obedience for me, are you listening, not my obedience for him. Our hope is not found in our own ability to be good. It's found in Christ's perfect obedience. And when we understand this, then we can look at things like, how do I live a disciplined life? How do I choose what I want most over what I want now? Because it's not rooted in fear, but it is rooted in a love and overflowing gratitude for what God has done. Now, let me pause for a second and give you a little bit of context for Paul. Some of you know, some of you are studying Bible courses, you know these things, but for those of you who don't, Paul was a guy who hated Christians, despised Christians. He was a horrible guy had a 180-degree change and was blinded on the road to Damascus, had a total change of heart, change of life, devotes his life to Christ, writes a third of the New Testament, and it's kind of what we would call a super-Christian. Right? This guy was incredible. An example of this would be, you know, for us, we, we are, are on this journey, this faith journey. Paul, when he would come in contact with people, like when they would brush up against his shirt, he would heal people. Right? Crazy stuff. And yet... Paul, being the super-Christian who's healing people by his robe, writes this passage that I think every single one of us, wherever we are in our journey, can relate to. So I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, but we'll be in Romans 7, starting in verse 15. And tell me, as I read this, if you can relate. It says this, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. Anybody tracking with this? Does that sound like your life? I know it sounds like mine. I want to live a certain way, but I don't. I know what I'm supposed to do, but so often I fail. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? If we stop there, it's a very depressing passage. But there's good news in all of it. Paul says, thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want to do the right thing, and I'm ashamed. I'm miserable. But the answer is not found in me trying harder, clenching my fists, and trying to be a better person. The answer is found when I understand that I can't live that life. Only Christ's obedience for me and me giving my life to Christ is enough. And through the power of Christ, through the power of his spirit, we can be transformed into his likeness. And we can choose between what we want now and what we want most. So we're going to go into our text. This is the, the central text for this morning. It's 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? 
So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will not fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So whenever we read the Bible, we want to consider the context in which it was written. Paul's writing here to the church in Corinth, and it's likely that they would associate the word race with a very specific event. Similar to the Olympics, they had something called the Isthmian Games. And essentially, it's like the Olympics, except for everybody was naked. Right? And they would go through, athletes would go through an incredibly rigorous training regimen, healthy eating, no alcohol. They would expose themselves to extreme heat and extreme cold. Right? They do this really intense training regimen all for this Isthmian Games. So when Paul says you can run the race that's marked out for you, this metaphor is not lost on them. They're able to relate to something that's very personal. And when the readers hear it, they understood what it meant, that they are not to slow, nothing to slow them down, but they were running to win. And then Paul says, this is thing you are running for is a prize that will not fade away. What you want most, something eternal, not something temporary, not a trophy, but something that is eternal. So I have two questions for you to wrestle with this morning. The first is this, what do you want most? I want you to ask that, think about it, meditate on it. What do you want most? Perhaps for you, you know you haven't been taking Christ or your faith seriously. And what you want most is to have a relationship with your creator. And you long for that. Maybe you've had a, a season where your soul has felt empty. And you're seeking meaning in your life, purpose in your life. You've been wrestling with depression or anxiety or feeling lost and you know that you lack meaning. Perhaps you feel lonely. Even though you've got people all around you in your life, you long to be in a community that loves you or cares for you. Perhaps there's something in your life that you know is holding you hostage. You're, there's an addiction or a struggle and, you're, and you know you need to quit this thing or else it's going to hold you back. Well, here's the deal. The good news is this, we are not about what, what uh, Dallas Willard calls the gospel of sin management, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about trying to, to behave better or change our behavior, right? Because the gospel is not just about getting better. It's about realizing that you getting better is anchored in and rooted in Christ's obedience for you. But in that, there's a transformation that takes place and we don't get better by being stagnant. So there's a tension here. Right? In us, God's work in us is calling us to be better, but that isn't what saves us. And we wrestle with this tension of faith and works. So I ask you the question again, what do you want most? What do you want most? If you don't know, if you're here and you're like, I don't really know what I want most, maybe that's something you can ask God to reveal to you. What is it that you want most? Number two, what do you need to do now to achieve what you want most? Maybe for you it is you, you desire to be close with God. That's a, that's a longing for you. That's something you want, but you're not really sure where to begin. Perhaps that begins by opening God's word. I know that can be really daunting and scary, but for, for, for many of you, there, there are ways you can join a Bible study on campus. Uh, perhaps you could download a, a Bible reading plan on the, on the Bible app. Whatever, whatever it is, find a way to get connected with God's word, or maybe 
it's filling your podcast or your podcast feed with podcasts that give you life or filling your Spotify playlist with music that gives you life, changing the things that input into our life to draw us closer to God. For some of you, very quickly when I said I want to quit something, something came to your mind. I'm going to be transparent with you this morning. I struggle with an addiction. And it's taken me a while to really admit this, uh, but it is something that has really taken me hostage in many ways, and that is an addiction to my phone. I struggle with an addiction to my phone. I, I, here's how I know. If I get to a stoplight, and I only have like one stoplight here in Sterling, but um, for those of you who come from a bigger city, you can relate. When I'm at a stoplight, there is like a magnetic force from my hand to my phone to check my Twitter feed or check to see if I have any notifications. I can't even sit at a stoplight without being tempted to want to look at my phone. Right, I'm, when I'm with my family, when I get home from work, there is something about this device that, that keeps me from being present with my family, with my friends, and ultimately it robs me of joy. So we have some rules at my house, because I'm, look, I'm a self-proclaimed addict. Okay, here, here's some of the rules. Uh, one, my wife, she can call me out, and I can't get mad at her for it. Okay, so if she tells me to put my phone away, I have to do it, and I can't get mad about it. Um, we have something called the phone box, the fox, right, where we put our phones to rest when I get home from work because I know that if it's in my hands, if it's in my presence, in a similar way, if an addict has alcohol or, or drugs in the home, they, they, they will end up using. And so for me, I can't have my phone in sight or I will be tempted to use it. Uh, we have an app called The Forest, if you've ever heard of it. This is kind of cool. Every time you plant a tree in your forest, you can't look at your phone for 25 minutes or your tree dies, and it's kind of sad. And then if you grow 10 trees, the company will literally plant a physical tree in your honor. Kind of a cool deal, right? So we use this together. We have contests throughout the week who can grow the most trees. Helps us be present with one another. But here, I want to speak to this because I think it's really prevalent among your generation. For those of you who are born after 1995, you are what researchers are calling part of Generation Z. <clears throat> now, I'm part of the millennial generation. And what's unique about your generation and compared to mine is that your generation is actually, in a lot of ways, a lot better. You're more connected. You're, you're very quick to learn things. Uh, you have less likely to be in a car accident. You are less likely uh, to binge drink or abuse drugs and alcohol, less likely to have teen pregnancies. You, you go on the list. You guys win in so many ways. But the reason researchers think that, and what's, what's the hard part about your generation is that there is a mental health crisis, and the levels of depression and anxiety are stifling. It's remarkable. And the re the part of the reason for this, researchers think, is because your generation spends more time alone in your room on your phones. And I'm not just saying that's true of your generation. My generation struggles with this too. But in particular, your generation is dealing with something they're calling deferred loneliness. And here's essentially what that is. You feel a, mo a moment where you feel lonely or sad, and instead of allowing yourself to feel an emotion, whether that's sadness, anger, loneliness, instead of allowing yourself to feel it, you'll repress it or push it aside by pulling out your device, getting a shot of dopamine, which numbs that emotion, doesn't allow you to feel it, and because of that, it's leading to these This is what uh, Professor Gene Twenge is writing about in terms of how um, your generation is dealing with emotion. And so because of this, so many people are struggling with this desire to have meaningful relationships, 
But so many of their relationships are found in a digital sphere and not in physical presence. And I speak to this because I know it in my own life, and I'm guessing that many of you struggle with this too. Perhaps this is an area you may want to quit. There are a lot of areas I didn't list, and perhaps you're under one of those, so I'll, I'll leave that at that. But I'm going to continue in that passage, 1 Corinthians 9. What does he say? So I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Now, I'm an undisciplined person, which is why I need to run with purpose. If I don't have a goal, if I don't have the end in mind, I usually won't go through with it. And along the way, I have to say to myself, Jesus, I need you here in this moment. Right? When I'm short with my spouse, Jesus, I need you here. When I'm tempted to overeat because I'm stressed, Jesus, I need you here in this moment. When I'm tempted to scroll through my Twitter feed instead of being present with my kids, Jesus, I need you here. I need him of every moment of every day. I want you to imagine for a second. You're out of college. You have your first job. You buy a beautiful home. And in this home, there's a beautiful yard. And every day you walk out of your house and you want to go to your car. You have to park in the street. Um, in order to get to your car, you have to walk around your lawn because you want to keep the lawn looking nice on the driveway to the street. And one morning you get up and you walk out and you think, oh, today I just don't feel like walking that extra, those extra yards. I just want to walk straight through my lawn and just it'll be fine. And so you do. And you look back in your lawn, it looks okay, right? Hardly made a difference. You don't really notice it. The next morning you wake up and you're kind of feeling tired. You didn't have your morning coffee. And you're like, yeah, I'm just going to walk through the lawn again. And you start to do this day after day after day. And at first you're not really noticing anything. But after about 15 or 16 times, your brain begins to develop a new neural pathway. Right? This is what you do. And day after day, eventually you look back and one morning you realize your lawn has a path through it that has been created by simply taking a shortcut. Why? Because we chose what we wanted now over what we wanted most. And this is where addiction begins. This is where we develop these habits in our life and these struggles in our life as we continually choose what we want now over what we want most. And what we have to continually remind ourselves is that Christ in me is stronger than the wrong desires in me. That Christ in me is stronger than the wrong desires in me. And if you do not, something, not do something about what you want now over what you want most, the reality is many of us are going to live with regrets. And I know in my personal life, I don't want to be a father whose kids had to work so hard to get my attention because I was always distracted on my phone. I don't want to live with that regret. I don't want to be the husband whose marriage falls apart because I let my lustful eyes lead me astray. I don't want to be... Uh, I don't want to be a family who's buried in debt because we, we didn't take care of our finances at a young age. I don't, want to be, uh, I don't want to eat junk food and not take care of my body and then someday not be able to move when my kids get older. I refuse to live with those regrets. I don't want to live that life. I know what's better. And so you choose between what we want now and what we want most. Here's the good news. The good news is this. Those neural pathways that can be created... I believe in a God who heals. I believe in a God who heals today. I believe it's what the Bible calls the renewing of the mind. Right? We are being healed even 
today. When we seek God for healing, for restoration, God is in the business of restoration. But here's the thing. We don't get better by being stagnant. Right? It's what D.A. Carson calls a grace-driven effort. Grace is the driver, but there is an effort that we make to become more like Christ, driven by our love and affection for God. A grace-driven effort. We are sinful, broken, messed up people who so often know what we're supposed to do and don't do it. But with grace as the driver, we can choose between what we want now and what we want most. And because God is an infinite, inexhaustible God, he can create in us a holy discontentment. Um, There's a beautiful quote by uh, St. Augustine. He says, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. So there's two pieces to this idea of holy discontentment. One is that we are wholly discontent until we fully know God, but the truth is God is inexhaustible. There's no end to him. So there is no end in our pursuit of knowing God. And the second is this. A holy discontentment is becoming like Jesus. We are wholly discontent in who we are today because we know that the prize we are running for is eternal. About a year ago, I spoke at a Sterling College chapel, a Sunday night chapel, on the idea of contentment, how we live with contentment. And this morning, I chose the opposite. How do we live in a place of holy discontentment? There's a tension. I have this memory of finishing that marathon. We're in the last mile, and I remember coming across this corner here we are coming around the last mile. We're, we're excited, right? The adrenaline's starting to kick in. We get to this spot where there's a bridge, and over there is one of my college professors. He no longer works here, but his name is uh, Dr. Hank Letterly. And I see him standing there at the bridge cheering us on. We all took classes with them, and he's giving us high fives. And we turn the corner, and we can see the finish line. And for, for anybody who, who's run a race before, there's nothing quite like seeing that last 100 yards to finish the race. And if you can't tell, my buddy Sam, he's wearing the Texas shorts. He's kind of a cheesy guy. And we get to that last little section of the race, and Sam grabs my hand, grabs Zach's hand, and so Zach's like, all right, grabs Paul's hand. So all four of us are holding hands for the last 100 yards. And there's a guy announcing the race, and he's calling out people's names. Congrats to this person. Congrats to this person. And then he says, congrats to the four dudes holding hands, right, as we're running in with our hands in the air. But I remember crossing that finish line easily top three moments of my life. All of the discipline, the conditioning, the training, all of it was worth it for that moment. And my hope for all of us is that we aren't living our life in a state of regret because we were not disciplined in choosing between what we want now and what we want most. And that first begins by knowing Jesus, trusting in his forgiveness and his grace, and we run with purpose in every step. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would cultivate in us a spirit of discontentment, a healthy discontentment, a holy discontentment, discontent in our knowledge of you and knowing you, that we would want to dive deeper and deeper and press into your grace and your love and your mercy. And I pray that you would also cultivate a a spirit of holy discontentment in, in who we are and who we're becoming that we want to become more like your son Jesus. Build that in us, grow that in us, 
to constantly be choosing between what we want now and what we want most. Lord, I pray that for all of us, whatever area or whatever place we are on that journey, Jesus, we call everyone here to that place. Lord, we love you and we worship you in precious name. Amen.